Thank you for joining us for Talking Sleep, a podcast of the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Seema Kosla, Medical Director of the North Dakota Center for Sleep in Fargo. Today, I'm pleased to welcome Dr. Dominic Galt, Medical Director of Pediatric Sleep Medicine at Prisma Health in Greenville, South Carolina. Dominic graduated from Hahnemann Medical College of Philadelphia before completing a residency in pediatrics at the University of Utah and a fellowship in sleep medicine at Intermountain Healthcare. His practice focuses on a comprehensive approach to sleep medicine by addressing the behavioral, developmental, neurological, and pulmonary issues that result in pediatric sleep disorders. Dominic, I am really grateful that you were able to carve out some time for us today. I know you are super busy, uh, and I think a lot of us have very significant concerns about our children and their sleep. I would love to hear your thoughts on opening schools this fall. Absolutely. Thank you, Seema, for having me. I really appreciate you asking me to come and and talk about this. And obviously, this is the perfect time. Uh, A lot of times when these conversations come up, they come up you know, after school starts or a day or two before school starts. And so having some leeway to have these conversations now, I think is the perfect time to do it. Um, As both a pediatric sleep medicine physician and a father, you know, I have these same concerns. Uh, And so I am looking forward to kind of figure out where do we go this year with everything that's been going on in the world and and how do we how do we make this adjustment? Uh, That's a challenge every year, uh, but particularly challenging this year. This is the question that I now start all of my clinic visits with that I never thought I would have to say. Um, How has your quarantine been treating you? (laughs) Yeah, I think like most people, you know, both professionally and personally, I'm just trying to take it one day at a time and and figure it out. Um, There's still so much we don't know about COVID-19. And so, you know, we're trying to be adaptable uh, in every aspect of our life, in our practice, you know, in addition to focusing on sleep issues, just like you, uh, I've been trying to spend a lot of extra time focusing on those social issues. And in my pediatric patients, I've spent a lot of time focusing on social connectivity. Um, you know, in the process of social distancing, I'm seeing a lot of my children become socially distanced from their peers. And that seems to be a really big theme that I've seen in my practice. And it's been causing a lot of stress for the children. Um, and so we're often talking about ways of maintaining those those connections, uh, even if not in person. It's It's really no different you know, than what we're doing in our medical practices with telehealth or we're doing with our own family and friends by by finding new ways to, to reach out to them. So then are you seeing patients in person or are you doing a hybrid approach? We are seeing patients in person. Um, we moved uh, for a while, for about six weeks to 100% telehealth and are still providing a large portion of our care telehealth. Locally, we're seeing a significant increase in COVID-19 cases. Um, so there's a real push for us to try to maintain and do as much telehealth as possible. Uh, and sleep is obviously in such a great position for telehealth. Uh, we've got so much in technology incorporated with it, with remote monitoring, with CPAP machines. Um, our sleep lab closed for a long period of time. Uh, and we used that opportunity while we were doing 100% telehealth to really increase our volumes. We were backfilling the time that we would normally spend reading sleep studies increasing access for additional new patients uh, to get to get into the clinic. In addition to our CPAP follow-ups, we found that our insomnia patients fit incredibly well in this telehealth model. In fact, I would say that some of my patients have actually done better when we deal with the insomnia patients in this telehealth model um, than doing it than doing it in person. I was wondering, you know, because kids are so 
um, you know, into their gadgets and so on and so forth. I almost wonder if kids are better served. Absolutely. You know, you get to see the patient's environment, um, which is an incredible advantage in this process. Um, a lot of times when we're implementing behavioral interventions for insomnia, seeing where the child's coming from can be a great opportunity. Uh, and it's a, and yeah, as you said about the technology, it's a great distractor, right? So as we're doing these behavioral interventions and having the discussions on how to implement them, they can take some time. Uh, I often tell people that treating a child with insomnia often takes me longer to implement the care plan than starting CPAP. And the uh, opportunity for the child to be involved and engaged for part of that visit, but then be able to go off and do something else, uh, especially now that we have taken all the toys and games out of our exam rooms for uh, you know infection prevention reasons, uh, that gives us an opportunity to have the child go off and the parents be able to really focus on that care plan and, and be able to be engaged fully as we implement it. So do you think the kids are more comfortable because they are in their space as opposed to coming into your space? I think there are certainly indications of that, at least for some of our children. You know, we found that with some of our children when we're doing exams, uh, you know, it's certainly not the same to do an exam through a through a telehealth visit. But I've had children who, you know, require a tongue depressor and, you know, uh, and a big hug from mom to get to get a good look up their nose or or down their or into their airway and to see their tonsils. And, you know, in, in the confines of their own house where they're feeling much more secure, they'll open up their mouth completely wide. And if we have a good light and a good camera, uh, we can get great exams of their airway. So I've had several children who I've struggled with airway exams in clinic who I've had better airway exams when they were at home. Isn't that great? You know, one thing that I accidentally stumbled upon when I was doing a telehealth visit, I had this lady who has idiopathic hypersomnia, and all of a sudden, she started complaining about insomnia. And I, was, and I was like, this is really weird. And she was in her bedroom, and we're just sort of chatting, and I couldn't figure out if it was a side effect of her medication. And she had this little light sitting on her on her bedside table and it was a green light and she started using it for migraines but she was using it at night and so i kind of think that that was causing this delayed sleep phase and 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 kind of giving her this sleep onset insomnia and i'm not sure that i would have picked up on that if i hadn't been able to see in her bedroom right okay no, what's that I think it's an amazing, yeah, we've had the same experiences where seeing the environment makes a huge difference. Um, and it really makes, I think, the kids happy. I mean, you know, for, for children to be able to show something that, you know, they created like an artwork on the wall or to show you their, you know, their favorite dog that they've talked to about in clinic before, um, you know, those are all really neat experiences that help you to kind of build those bonds with your families in addition to kind of getting those insights into the environment. I do love meeting the dogs. I will say that. It, that has really been kind of fun. You know, I had, uh, I had a patient who had twin toddlers that were crying and crying and crying during the first part of our visit. And I wound up getting up and showing the kids my dogs <laughs> to kind of get them to stop crying so that I could continue my visit with their mom. I thought that was, I couldn't have done that in clinic. You know, I thought that was really interesting. So, Tell and me about and see. I don't know about in your practice, but in our practices and at the hospital, they've had a visitor policy now in place where they're really limiting the amount of caregivers that are available to come in. We actually allow only one caregiver, except with really extenuating circumstance, to come to a visit. Uh, and so, in the adult world, I know a lot of times they're not allowing any caregivers to come in 
And so, you know, the other advantage that we're having with telehealth is we can have, you know, multiple caregivers. We can have grandma there. We can have everybody else there that we want to have involved in the conversation. Oh, I love that. I bet that's very pertinent to your practice. So tell me a little bit, how are your kids sleeping? Well, so I have two kids and we always sort of joke in my house that um, they, they're very good sleepers. And, and even through COVID, we've managed to keep them pretty good sleepers, though we have changed the rules around quite a bit. And people always say that that must be because their dad's a pediatric sleep medicine physician. But, you know, I always knew I could fix their problem. So the real reason is that there is that the mom loves her own sleep so much. And so she <laughs> keeps their schedule really rigid. Um, you know, we- I think that's great because I feel a, a little bit um, like I'm a failure. My kids are getting delayed sleep phase, even though I am really, really trying to limit their screen time and, and trying to be um, trying to follow the rules. But if I look back and I'm trying to be honest with myself, I mean, they're watching screens way more than they ever would. You know, yeah. and part of it is because I am doing telemedicine from home. So I'm seeing patients all day and this keeps them from, you know, knocking at my door all the time. And then part of it is that, you know, they, they can't really play with their friends. And what are they supposed to do all day? And so we've actually seen some really interesting things emerge in our practice. And I've actually heard similar things from other pediatric sleep colleagues you know, there's certainly, you know, increased screens and, and you know, we, we worry a lot about screens in terms of their effects on sleep and, and the effects of light at night and things like that. But I think we forget about, especially as we look at this generation, how much of the social connectivity happens with it that we talked about before. Um, but we've seen some other interesting things emerge as we, you know, you're talking about delayed sleep phase in your children and things like that. Um, a lot of our, our children are actually you know, sleeping on the schedule that they may prefer to sleep on to start with. And so, you know, they're going to bed later, especially our our pre-adolescent and adolescents, and they're sleeping in. And so there's a lot of children that we see who for long periods of time, we've been following for, you know, insomnia, but with this sort of indolent, low level fatigue, tiredness, keeping them from performing their best, not really to the pathologic level where they have idiopathic hypersomnolence or narcolepsy or anything like that, but really just not doing their best because they're not getting enough sleep. And the amount of those children whose complaints are going down is exponential. And so this summer, I have, I'm having more and more patients who have had these kind of longstanding complaints of tiredness who come in and say, I feel great. This is the most awake and alert I've ever been. Um, and, you know, the, the school learning that moved to school online also helped with that because, you know, we talk about the school start times. You know, we know very well that a school start time of 8.30 a.m. or later um, is associated with better performance, better attention, better focus, less truancy, um, you know, less accidents, higher grades. And all those benefits, kids were able to get for themselves. So even though we haven't, as a society, often instituted a structure that allows for those later school start times, having some flexibility allowed a lot of our children to get more sleep. So not only are they you know, getting more sleep, but it, but that sleep is at the time that they function at the best. I think that translates into the adult world too, because I've definitely noticed that, you know, there's definitely been a shift in our patients where they're, you know, maybe staying up a little bit later, but their total sleep time, I, I agree. I think it has improved, you know, yeah. so on, on one hand, I'm really pleased to see that, you know, and now I feel like you're, you're making me feel better that I'm not such a terrible parent because my kids are getting, they're getting enough sleep and they're up and they're active when they are uh, awake, you know. So in my practice, I don't see kids, but I, I see parents. And so 
at least once a week, a parent is asking me about how much sleep their child should be obtaining. And I always have to look it up. You know, it's just, it's nothing that I can keep in my brain easily. Do you, so I'll go to the ASM website and I'll look it up. Do you have a better way or an easier way to remember this? So the first thing I always tell people is my least favorite question as a pediatric sleep specialist is, can you tell me if my child is getting enough sleep? Um, because in pediatrics, you know, we're already dealing with the challenge that we're dealing with children ag across a growth spectrum uh, and a development spectrum. So, you know, each stage is a little bit different, um, but it's also a little bit of a rhetorical question, right? So we know that even within each of those ages, how much sleep should my child get? There's a range. Uh, and so it's really rhetorical in the sense of how's your child doing? Are they getting enough sleep? Do they in, to be able to function? to pay attention, to pay alert, to be alert, to do well, to be not tired during the daytime. And if they are, and they're in the normal range, then you feel really good. But even if they're in the normal range and they're not doing those things and they're at the bottom of the normal range, they very well may not be getting enough sleep. I almost feel like parents at least can say, hey, this is what the doctor says. You should be getting this much sleep. You know, I almost feel like it arms them to help them with that inevitable battle when you're trying to get your kid to go to bed. You know, so that part I kind of see in my patients when they're very frustrated that their kid isn't getting enough sleep. Absolutely. And, and, and unfortunately, like everything we do with these kind of developmental characteristics, you really do almost have to memorize the numbers. There's not an easy way. Um, we all have little tricks that we do to memorize numbers. So for me, um, I start all of my memorization of the, of the, of the, how much sleep you should get with the, six to 12 year old age group uh, and that they should get nine to 12 hours of sleep. And, and part of that's just because for some reason, those numbers stick well in my brain. The teenagers always make sense to me as well, because I remember Mary Carskadden's old research. Um, unfortunately, those kids were sleeping in a 24 and a quarter, 24 and a half hour world. Um, but she showed that they got about nine and a half uh, to 10 and a half hours of sleep in that in that time frame. And so yeah, I know that we, we recommend eight to 10 hours, but I'm usually looking hopefully to get eight and a half to nine and a half hours in my kids who are complaining about being tired. Now, if they're functioning well with eight hours, that's certainly very reasonable. Um, but the other thing that I do is I've actually have a, a handout that I give my families frequently that has that very information, uh, how much sleep kids need at different ages. And I actually have it in a digital form that I can put into their electronic record as well. Um, and I find that families really benefit from that. It helps to kind of start our and frame our conversations about insomnia with, with good expectations about what's normal. So they kind of know where we're starting and where we want to get. And, you know, sometimes they're surprised that their children are actually getting enough sleep. Um, other times they have really unrealistic expectations and they want their children to sleep way longer uh, than is really feasible. And so it's really important to start with that information. So I think giving it to families is helpful. And then the flip side of that is a lot of times the families take that back and take it to their other children and say, wow, I didn't think that this, you know, three-year-old doesn't, shouldn't have the same bedtime as his eight-year-old brother. Uh, right. so a lot of times we've been able to use it to help other children in the family as well, kind of have a, a rest, the right expectations for sleep. That's fantastic. Let's pause for a moment before we return to our conversation with Dr. Dominic Galt. You're listening to Talking Sleep from the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. The Virtual Sleep 2020 schedule is now available at sleepmeeting.org. Review the entire listing of sessions offered and begin your plan to see yourself at sleep. With over 50 sessions to enjoy 
and access to all content until August 1st, 2021. Sleep 2020 is sure to be the best conference you attend this year. See the schedule and register now at sleepmeeting.org. Welcome back to Talking Sleep. Let's return to our guest, Dr. Dominic Galtz, a pediatric sleep specialist, to learn more about how we can help our kids and young patients manage their sleep during these difficult times. What do you think we need to be doing now for our children, for our patients, for our, our own kids? What, what should we be doing? What should we not be doing? So part of it is going to be really a challenge because none of us really knows what's coming with school, right? And so that is going to be the biggest, that's going to be the million dollar question is what does school look like this year? The flip side is we know that we need to plan ahead. Um, and so one of the reasons why this is such a timely conversation is, you know, we're not a day or two before school starts. We're, you know, a month before school starts. Our school district still hasn't announced what their plans are for this year. So we really don't know what do we aim for. So it's hard for us to give a lot of recommendations when we don't know what the school year starts with. As you were talking about your own children, you were talking about, well, they're staying up later, but they're sleeping in later, but they're getting enough sleep. They're functioning fine during the day. And so we often talk about summer schedules versus school schedules. And, you know, if you're getting enough sleep on a set schedule, you tend to function really well. We can jump, we can, we can jump our schedules back and forth over long period of times, like a summer break. We can't do it over a weekend, which is where we get into a lot of trouble with our teenagers. And so thinking ahead, it's getting to be time where we have to really start thinking about what do those school schedules look like? Well, I agree with you. You know, our school um, has proposed maybe a hybrid system. So they thought about kids alternating two days a week going to physical school for half the kids and then swapping the other two days a week and then having Fridays off. So then half the kids would be distance learning, half of them would be classroom learning. Uh, and then they have another model where they say, well, you know what, school's open and you can keep your kid home if you want to, or you can send them to school. But they really haven't gotten into the granularity of masks and what to do if, you know, because we have to think this through. So let's say a teacher is positive, then are all the kids quarantined and their family members quarantined, right? So I, it, it's so much more than just the kid in the classroom, right? It is, um, you know, from a sleep standpoint, we can we can try to we can try to make it more granular. We can try to break it down, and the way that we do it with with all of our children when it start when the school year starts, and it really won't be different this year, except that we'll need to figure out which of those children are going to be virtual learning and which of those children are going to go to school. Is all of our treatment plans start with what time do you have to get up, uh, and all of them work backwards from what time you have to get up, and so establishing that set awakening time keeping it the same weekdays, weekends, whether they're in person or at, at home learning. And if there's a hybrid model, it may be both in the same week, but keeping it at that earliest time so that they keep that set schedule and then setting their bedtime, the appropriate amount of time based on the amount of sleep that they need to obtain before that and maintaining that cycle and that schedule really can be helpful uh, and really is where we start that. And it takes about two weeks, you know, before school that we really want our children starting to work on getting moved to that schedule to get them prepared to go back into the next school year and to be at their best by the time school starts. So are you planning then? Have you have you thought about, you know, your school starts in a month? So have you started trying to regulate your kids' sleep-wake cycle or is it pretty, are they already on their school cycle? 
mine are not on their cycle now. Um, and, and unfortunately, their parents aren't either because we've, <laughs> we've kind of gotten off cycle with this as well as they as we've had as they've not had to get up and get ready for school over the school year. It's allowed us to get up a little bit later as well. And I think that's going to be one of the challenges, right, as we talk about these ingrained changes in schedule that have happened. Um, you know, usually when we're talking about going back to school, we're talking about, you know, two to three months over the summer of summer break. Uh, but we have now been in this model where children have been home for five or six months. And so, you know, we've had these schedules be much more ingrained in in, in their behavior. So that's going to be a challenge that we're going to have to deal with. The other thing that I think is really interesting is usually even in the summertime, there's some structure, right? Children might be getting up to go to camp or go to a daycare program while their parents go to work. Their parents are getting up for work and have their own structure. But because a lot of parents are either are either not working now or they're they're working from home and working later hours, um, it affords sort of this more variable schedule. So a lot of the Zet givers that they would normally have, even in the summertime when they were sleeping in with mom and dad going to work or things like that, or going to daycare or going to camps aren't there. And so we can, we're going to have extra challenges this year that we haven't had in years past. Well, that's just it, right? I mean, for, for us, I know we had a COVID scare at my house last week and we all summer and, and before that, we've been really, really strict about who the kids can play with. And of course, we've got a neighborhood full of children, um, but this has been really tough on them. So what are you sharing with your the parents of your patients about uh, coronavirus and, and prevention? I mean, what's the message that you're giving them? I mean, you know, the message is changing for everybody and it continues to change. You know, we we in pediatrics have been somewhat fortunate that our children seem to be less affected. It's not that they're that children aren't affected. Um, and unfortunately, it only takes one child to be affected till it's till it's a horrible thing. But, you know, if we think about children as making up 24 percent of the population, according to the um, children in COVID-19 state data report from the AAP and the Children's Hospital Association that came out, only about seven and a half percent of the cases of COVID-19 are, are pediatric. And then if we look at the the deaths, you know, we're talking about 0.1 or 0.2 percent of the deaths. And so children are getting affected, but they seem to be getting affected less. And, and when they get it, they tend to be getting less sick. And so a lot of it is not just thinking about our children, but also thinking about those people who take care of them at the school, the teachers, uh, the administrators and, and the other staff at the school who help to keep the school together. And how do we protect the entire environment? It's not just the children that we're talking about. And that's why we talk a lot about, you know, continuing to encourage our families to do the things that, that most of them have been doing for now an extended period of time. You know, social distancing, staying at home as much as possible, limiting travel, wearing masks hand sanitizers and staying six feet apart when they're in public. It's hard to do with kids though, isn't it? It is. It's a real challenge. And I know, you know, a lot of families have, have made sort of cohorts of, you know, other families if, if they are, if their own family isn't nearby where they've, you know, created a few friend networks to allow children to go outside and play because you're right. It is, it's hard for children to make those, those distinctions and, 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 and keep those lines separate. And they've been sort of bottled up in their own houses for so long that when they see each other, you know, there's this outgoing of just friendship and, and being together again and happiness that you see in them that you really, it, it's wonderful to see, but you worry about, you know, what are the consequences of that kind of downstream as well? 
Well, and naturally, right? They they tend to have a closer proximity. They're hugging and they're high fiving, and you know, for the kids that they haven't seen, and, and that's what we're doing in our neighborhood. We have these cohorts where we watched what families were doing, and we thought, okay, well, these ones have been isolated, and we had those conversations with the parents, and you know, what are your risks, and what have you been doing, and are you masking in public, and you know, and and that sort of thing. And so you're right. I think we've created these cohorts. Um, have you have you thought about what you're going to do with your kids this fall? Are you going to keep them at home? Or are you going to send them in? Yeah, part of it is going to be depending on what the school ends up allowing us to do, right? We are we're all sort of going to be beholden to what what the school systems and the education systems and the and the governments and the local uh, determinants are for each area. And you know, and it's so different. You know, I think that's one of the things where with what we do with our own children is going to you know, be affected by all those things. And everybody else is going to have those same discussions and same decisions with a whole different set of, of concerns. It may be, you know, that someone in their family, you know, just was diagnosed with cancer or has a respiratory illness or is older who is living in the home with them. And so all of us are going to have these, these variable kind of decisions to make. Um, and we have to think about what's going on in our community. How serious is our community taking these, these risks and things like that? Um, at this point, um, I think we would consider sending our kids to school um, with, you know, whatever environment it is, ideally with, you know, all those ideal situations, social distancing, uh, masking, hand sanitizers and things like that at, at increased abundance, obviously trying to keep, you know, extra people out of the school and things like that. So we don't have lots of volunteers and things like that. And, and I think those are all going to be played out over the next little bit and, and different schools are going to have different abilities to do that. Uh, and so I think everybody's going to need to be making that decision for themselves. So one of my patients um, a few weeks ago said that it's like we're trying to build the airplane while it's in the air. And I thought that was such a good comparison. And it, and it really makes me think about even our decision when we talk about schools in the fall, that decision won't be carved in stone the first day of school, right? There's going to be this constant reevaluation and tweaking and changing, and maybe they will have to pull back and do distance learning for two weeks and then reevaluate it and bring them out to the classroom again. You know, so that's what I'm envisioning, I think. What do you think is going to happen where you are? I think that's absolutely it. And I honestly, it's not any different than it's happening in our practices, right? We've made those same decisions about opening labs and then scaling back, or how are we going to screen patients coming to the lab? Uh, we make those same decisions about, you know, how much do we open our doors for inpatient visits versus telehealth? So we're making those same decisions in our practices um, that, that we're going to have to make in our schools. And I think everybody's making them in, in pretty much every aspect of their life right now. So tell me what you're doing in, in your lab. So in our lab, we um, opened up a couple weeks ago. Um, we, it's amazing how much longer it takes to reopen a lab than it does to close it. Um, and, and once we brought all of our staff back, had to get everything kind of up and running. We are screening with um, questionnaires. We are using PPE for our, for our procedures. Uh, and we are treating our, each patient as though they are potentially infectious um, because, you know, obviously, the, the incubation periods and those types of things and the rates of negative tests were, you know, negative testing and, and, you know, sensitivity and specificity of these tests is still 
being discovered. And so we're treating everybody as though they're infected at this point and kind of working backwards. Obviously, if they have high risk, if they've had been around someone who's tested positive, um, if they've had a fever or they have a fever when they come in, because we test both the parent and the caregiver, remembering that we've got two vectors potentially coming into the lab. Um, and so we're we're treating everybody as if they they potentially have it. And that's been sort of the way that we've figured out that it would, would make the most sense for us to protect our, our staff. And then I suppose you have to think about um, how all of this will then impact other diagnoses. Like you had mentioned earlier about the kids that you had been watching for a long time that were kind of tired, but they didn't have idiopathic hypersomnia or anything like that. You know, when we when we bring our patients in for MSLT after their actigraphy and so on and so forth, we're basing that on kind of this more conventional sleep-wake cycle, right? Absolutely. You know, unless we've made special considerations in terms of scheduling the tech. So this for your population, I bet is a, is a much bigger deal. Absolutely. You know, we talk about delayed sleep phase affecting about seven to 10% of pediatric patients or of our adolescent patients. So it's a really common issue for us. And, and every year, I mean, regardless of, um, of how long kids have been out of school and, and how long, um, you know, they've been, had the opportunity to sleep in later, you know, we have a rush of patients in October with delayed sleep phase. And every year we get a couple of children who have been evaluated at other centers uh, and diagnosed with narcolepsy because they meet the criteria. They've got a shortened sleep latency, especially on their first two or three naps. They've got two to three sleep onset REMs on their first two or three naps. And when we get a history, they really have delayed sleep phase and, and often like a five or six hour delayed sleep phase. And that's those are the children I'm, I'm most worried about as we kind of head back to the school year this year as well, is those children who have really either five or six hours or even reverse their circadian phases because they're going to take the longest to kind of realign themselves. Tell me a little bit about how you differentiate between delayed sleep phase and social jet lag. And, and then how does that impact what we're planning to do this fall? Absolutely. And obviously, they're both kind of the same issue, but potentially differences in terms of how severe the person is affected. You know, anyone who travels from California back to the East Coast is going to be able to um, get, you know, have a little bit of a time frame where they're tired and their their circadian rhythm is not entrained and they are catching up. For our children who have social jet lag, you know, a couple of days, a couple of weeks of really locking in that schedule, they're going to be jumping back and be able to get up in time for school. They're going to be awake and alert and able to focus. And they're going to be able to start to go to bed at night at a time that allows them to get enough sleep. The problem is for those children who have now been on these extended schedules of staying up late, sleeping in, or potentially even staying up all night and sleeping all day, who have now really locked in this new circadian rhythm. And, you know, that's the 7 to 10% of our children already who are at risk for delayed sleep phase. And those are the children that we're really going to have to work on because they've had this longer period of time to be able to get that rhythm entrained to the wrong to the wrong time zone. And so I use the time zone analogy a lot. The families seem to understand that more than they understand delayed sleep phase. So we talk a lot about their living in California. And, and the problem for me is I'm on the East Coast. So after about three time zones, you know, I get into the, you know, the ocean and I'm not sure where Hawaii <laughs> falls. Um, so we're just somewhere in the Pacific Ocean for a lot of my patients floating around. And we talk about we got to get them swimming back our way uh, to the East Coast. And so using that that analogy, 
Um, some of the kids are going to come back pretty easily. They're going to take a trip to California or go sailing in the Pacific Ocean for a summer. And then they're going to come back and they're going to be okay in a couple weeks. But it's those other children that we're going to have to be much more attentive to this year. And those are the children that we need to use the, the, the more, you know, directed their chronotherapeutic interventions, things like phototherapy in the morning, timed melatonin, um, potentially chronotherapeutic marching or other structures to try to help them get realigned. And those are the ones that we're going to need to be really paying attention to because there's going to be more of those who come to us this year because of the fact that they've had longer and less ZET givers with their parents kind of not maintaining their schedules as well either, uh, that, that we're going to see more of these children being affected and, and have more of these children who are then going to really struggle at the beginning of the school year. Well, that was exactly my question that I bet it, it won't be seven to 10% anymore. I, I would imagine it might be higher than that. Well, we know, we know, we know that children in, in their pre-adolescent and adolescent years have that circadian phase shift of about an hour and a half, two hours. And so, you know, we know that that's a natural part and we're spending all of our time, all of us trying to pull that circadian clock uh, backwards and, and, and have, and, you know, trying to, uh, trying to go to bed earlier and, and wake up in time. And so you're right. I think we're going to see, we may see a more natural number of what that is when you, when you have a more, a less controlled environment and, and you have less of those things affecting and, and maintaining that circadian entrainment through the summertime. And I think the same probably translates into the adult world where we have seen that shift, that, that tendency to sleep in where all of a sudden if things do go back to sort of the pre-pandemic way of being, uh, I suspect we'll have to do a lot of education on circadian rhythm disturbance and melatonin release and that sort of thing with our patients, um, just in anticipation of them having uh, difficulty adjusting. Absolutely. And, you know, and we think about how much freedom they've had right now and, and as a family. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, if we just try to jump them back to their normal schedule, we'll be on the wrong side of that, of that melatonin, uh, of that of peak right. melatonin secretion. And so, you know, we're going to have to be very attentive to that as we kind of go back into school this year and make sure that our timed light and our melatonin doesn't exacerbate things, but, but actually helps the way we want it to. Well, you almost wonder if distance learning then is better for a subset of our kids. Yeah, there's certainly the, the children who are delayed sleep phase who could who can structure their own schedule. It can do very well for. I I have a child with autism who I followed for years, um, who had a free running circadian rhythm, and he wasn't very interested in having it treated. He got his eight and a half hours, nine and hours of sleep as a high school child, and and did his online learning when he was awake, and then went to sleep and was very content. And I would watch his little CPAP download, move, move around the circle and he'd get, he'd get kind of entrained for about two or three days. And then he'd keep going as we'd hit this, the, the few days of sunlight uh, that he was awake during the daytime for. And, and those children do really well with that. And, and I think a lot of children and a lot of my families are, are taking what they've seen and how well they've seen their children do uh, and, and put that into their consideration for whether virtual visits uh, an option. And so much of that depends on how engaged can the parents be in making sure that that virtual visit is, or that virtual education is um, beneficial uh, and, and that they can really engage and get the full experience out of it and, and get a real learning experience from it. You know what I love about that is that you allowed him to be the boss, right? It was his body. He knew his body best. He knew how to function best. And he's, it sounds like he's thriving. I think that's fantastic. 
it definitely depends on the on the on the patient, right? Not every patient would that be the ideal scenario for, um, because you have so many patients who that would not go within the social norms. But but he was his his autism was a, was affected enough that he was going to have some limitations in terms of social contact and social involvement in other activities. So you know we weren't necessarily worried about things like occupation and and things like that so it did allow us a lot more opportunity and freedom with with him than than some other children have well that's fantastic this has been a really great uh, discussion lots of interesting topics uh, i really appreciate the time i know that you're really squeezed for time so thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to us well, i appreciate you having me thank you sima Thank you for listening to Talking Sleep, brought to you by the American Academy of Sleep Medicine. For more podcast episodes, please visit our website at aasm.org. You can also subscribe through your favorite podcast service. And if you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. For more feedback or suggestions, please email us at podcast at aasm.org. I hope you'll join us again for more Talking Sleep. Until next time, this is Seema Kosla encouraging you to sleep well so you can live well.